Hello and welcome to This Way Up. In this series, I talk to a number of leading women in the creative industry, talking specifically about the good, the bad and the ugly of their career. And for this episode, I caught up with Annie Atkins. You might have not heard of her name, but you will certainly have seen her work. She's a mastermind behind some of the most iconic graphic props and set pieces for multi-award winning films. Notably, and probably one that stands out the most, is her work for Wes Anderson's Grand Budapest Hotel, Isle of Dogs, and most recently, The French Dispatch. And yes, the famous pink patisserie box from the Grand Budapest Hotel is made by her. She's also worked on the animated feature The Box Strolls, Spielberg's Bridge of Spies, and most recently, his Wet Skies story adaptation. And that's just to name a few. To say I was excited to record this interview is an understatement. Annie is, as expected, fascinating. As usual, I followed her career path, from starting her design course at Ravensbourne to her challenging time as a designer in the world of advertising, to her first job on the set of The Tudors, and finally her time working as a fully-fledged graphic designer for the film industry. We go deep into the work that makes up her extensive career to date, and Annie is full of great stories, from designing the carpet in the Grand Budapest Hotel, to making a spelling mistake on that famous French patisserie box, to constructing maps, newspapers, and even dog tags for Anderson's Isle of Dogs. She's also open about the type of mindset that is required to make it in this highly stressful job. And as a woman, we talk about the things that are finally changing in the film industry, where the importance of flexibility at work is starting to be recognized. I could go on about how much I enjoyed this conversation, but instead, I will let you hear it for yourself. So, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. This is Annie Atkins, and this is This Way Up. Welcome to the show, Annie. Thank you, Rebecca, and thanks for having me on the show. I'm a huge fan of all your amazing work, and I'm so thrilled to have you on the podcast. Um, I'd love to begin our conversation by asking you to paint me a picture, if you like, of your childhood in Wales. Uh, My childhood in Wales was probably pretty idyllic, I should say. I mean, I grew up in the middle of the Snowdonia National Park, so it was a little village in the mountains surrounded by forests and rivers. And um, my parents were uh, designers. My mum was an illustrator and my dad was a graphic designer. And all I wanted was to get out of there. You know, like it was such a tiny tiny village that's just 300 people and I dreamt of living in either London or even just somewhere like suburban Birmingham or something um I you know I read a lot of books uh set in the suburbs of English towns and um Yeah, I just wanted to go somewhere with a higher population density, I suppose. Yeah, that's fair enough. But 300 people, that's pretty small. But it does sound pretty idyllic as well. Yeah, it was. It was beautiful. And of course, once I got to London, because I went to London to study graphic design then, it really wasn't for me at all. 
Uh, and that's when I began to appreciate North Wales mm. and also just, just smaller places in general. Yeah, I, I can imagine. London is a very big contrast to Wales. Tell me about that. Tell me about um, that experience of um, studying in London and you went to Ravensbourne. Yeah, Ravensbourne had a great reputation. I think when I was there, it was going through a little bit of change and things were maybe uh, on the less organized side. Um, but it was still, it was still really valuable. Like I'm glad I went there. Uh, that was back in, it was around the turn of the millennium. I remember, I remember the millennium New Year's Eve was when I was in college at some point. So yeah, around 2000. What did you do there? I, I studied, uh, I think they call it visual communication design, which is basically graphic design. Um, and they really geared us towards working at an ad agency. Uh, right. So I didn't really understand that there were other options, I suppose. That's interesting. That um, So they just like anyone that sort of comes to the course is very much about pushing you to do advertising rather than the multiple of different jobs that you can do with uh, graphic design? Yeah, I, I think so. I mean, I understand it in a way because that's where all the work was, you know, and mm. that's where you could, that's where you could earn a really good living uh, as a designer. And there were tons of ad agencies in London who were taking on interns from the college and it was actually a very easy path to get into. And it's, it's what I did get into. I left, I graduated around 2002, I suppose. And not long afterwards, I went back to Wales for a little bit. And then not long afterwards, I went to Reykjavik in Iceland to McCann Erickson ad agency. Wow. And that was where I got my first proper grown up job, I suppose. So, do you mind if we sort of pause here? That's a pretty interesting path in itself. You were in London, kind of the mecca for advertising, and then you just thought, actually, no, I'm going to go to Reykjavik. Yeah, I really didn't like London. Um, it just wasn't for me. Like everything that I'd fantasized about as a kid, you know, like having all these people everywhere and things to do, and museums and galleries and all the shows that I'd go to. Um, I just... It, I just wasn't comfortable there. And I mm. also didn't do very much anyway. Like I, I didn't go to the shows and, and the galleries and things. How did that opportunity uh, come about? I started thinking about smaller places that I could live in. Um, like being back in Wales wasn't really an option. Rural North Wales didn't have, didn't have many, uh, you know, design agencies that I could have worked at. Um, and my dad had lived in Reykjavik briefly in the 1970s. Ah. He'd, he'd worked in a darkroom, a photographer's darkroom there. Um, and he always talked about Reykjavik when we were kids and how amazing it was and what a fantastic country Iceland was. And I actually was thinking about taking some time out. And I thought that I could go to Iceland on a bit of, a, bit of an adventure, but I'd take my portfolio with me. And I'd see if I could visit some some agencies, and um, and you stayed. I stayed. I mean, I mean, I suppose I was only really thinking of staying for a summer, um, but I went there in the late spring of two thousand and 
three, I suppose, and ended up staying for four years um, wow. after I got a job at the agency. Yeah. So I mean, I love really that great. idea. It seems to me like you're quite good at sort of thinking, okay, I'm not happy here, so I'm going to go and, and change that. And that was a, a really lovely place. To do. And I can imagine that in Reykjavik, it's a, it's a different way of working as well. I mean, I was quite nervous about it. I remember going for my interview at the ad agency and one of the creative directors said, so that's quite brave. You've just hopped off an aeroplane with your mm. portfolio, come to see us. And I said, well, I don't feel very brave. I feel quite nervous, actually. And he said, well, that's what bravery is, isn't it? It's, it's doing something even though you're afraid of it. And I thought, yeah, okay, I'll run, I'll run with that. Um, but it's so true, though. Yeah, it's so true, and it's good that you were honest about it. That you were, you were sort of scared, but yeah, it's true. Yeah. So I got the job there as a junior designer, and I don't know when I look back at that work now. I was a terrible designer when I first started out. <laughs> like I was terrible. Um, I mean, I was there for four years, so I slowly worked my way up to art director over that time. Um, but when I was a junior at that agency, I was just so rubbish at design. Um, <laughs> I remember hearing somebody in another interview saying, another designer saying, you know, like we're all terrible when we start out. Don't be afraid of being terrible. And I thought, oh, right. I thought I was the only one, you know, I didn't realize we were all bad at it. Um, That's so true. But yeah, I remember having to do things like one of the big clients we had there was the Icelandic uh, telecom network. And um, I remember one of the things, jobs I had to do as a junior designer was design the phone book uh, and do the layout for that and stuff. Um, do you remember phone books? Like, yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm just thinking that is such a big job. <laughs> yeah, it was a big job. I mean, there was, there was a team of us on it, you know, but but I was one of one of the members of the phone book team, like every single person in the country listed in this thing. And I remember having to pick colours because they wanted to divide Iceland up into like five territories. And I had to pick a different colour for each chapter. <laughs> and I remember just being like, pick a color for each chapter well there's there's four colors isn't there there's like red green yellow and blue and then I mean the fifth color I suppose you could have purple or orange and um, I remember a senior designer sitting down with me with a Pantone book and kind of giving me like a a flash lesson in in how to in how to pick colors and colors that would go together and, and all this um but I was thinking about this recently because later in life now, you know, I've really embraced my love of primary colours. Like I noticed that nearly all the work I do outside of my film work now, my personal artwork, everything's either red, yellow, blue or green. Um, <laughs> so, so I feel okay about it now. But certainly at the time I was like, oh my God, I didn't even know like how to, how to select colours and what different colours look like next to each other. And um yeah, it was, a, it was a really steep learning curve. I can imagine. But that is um, so true how we all start out so bad. And it's also so true that we internalize how bad we are. I remember thinking the exact same thing, just thinking, oh, my God, I'm just the only one who can't draw properly. Everyone else is super good. Um, yeah. But, yeah, I can imagine for you that that must have been, that must have been sort of a steep learning curve, as you said. 
I'm not sure about drawing. I heard, I heard, I heard somebody once describe graphic design as just being illustration for people who can't draw. Um, <laughs> I feel okay. I feel okay about that. You know, like if I, I do a little bit of illustration, like a tiny bit, you know. But if I need something done professionally, I'll hire an illustrator to work with me. Um, and I wouldn't expect illustrators to understand typesetting. You know, I, I think they're two quite different paths. Yeah, so true. And yet it's funny that you say that because obviously, and we'll talk about your work in even more detail, but when I see it, I, I imagine someone who can do everything. Um, but of course, you you sort of are aware of the different talents that is required in order to get it exactly right. Um, so that's really interesting. We'll circle back on that a little bit later. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah, sure. So then in the ad agency, like I... F- I did, I learned a lot. I suppose I started getting a little bit good at graphic design, but I never felt like I was really, I I always felt like I could be much better, you know, and it was disheartening. And I started to think that I just was not a good designer and I didn't have the potential to be a good designer. Um, And that was when I decided to do something else entirely. And I remember talking to my boss, one of the creative directors about it. And he had been reading my blog, which I'd been writing, just like a personal account of what life was like in Iceland for a foreigner. And he said to me, well, you know, maybe you do need to do something more creative for a while. Like, you know, what about, what about, I know you have an interest in filmmaking. What about going and studying film? And... I had always wanted to do that, but I kind of needed to hear somebody else say it. Mm. And I was like, yeah, I'm going to do that. That's what I'm going to do. And I I went off with the intention of, I suppose at that point, because I had decided I was no good at design, um, I went off with the intention of being, learning to be a screenwriter, I suppose, because I loved writing. Yeah. Or even just like, you know, like a camera operator or, I don't know, like any of the other roles in film that you think Mm. about when you think about the people who work on a film set. Um, It didn't really occur to me at that point that I could be a designer for film, you know? Mm. So that's interesting. So what what were the voices in your head at that point? Because um, were you comparing yourself with top, top designers in advertising? Is that why you felt that you weren't good at it? I think it was advertising design. Right. I think it was just the wrong area for me, especially in a Nordic country, Mm. because the top designers there, I mean, the work was so beautiful and so minimal. Yeah. And everything was digital and everything was clean and crisp and beautiful, pale color palettes, muted tones. And I was someone who had grown up designing with paint you know, like my mum was an illustrator, mm-hmm. did a lot of painting. Like I, I, I don't call myself an illustrator and I'm not great at drawing, but I was certainly good at using a paintbrush and even like drawing letters with paint, mm. um, felt it pens, glue, papier-mâché. Um, and the Scandinavian design aesthetic just did not accommodate that at all. Um, and may- maybe it wasn't just Scandinavian design. Maybe it was also the design of that time in the early noughts, you know, we're so used to people handcrafting now and hand lettering um, and using analog materials now, but this is really 
this is really a kind of fashion we've been going through for the last few years. 15, 20 years ago, yeah. it wasn't like that. Everybody was working with vectors. Absolutely. Yeah. And I could not get my head around vectors. I really couldn't. Like <laughs> start, starting a design with a blank illustrator document in your mouse. Um, I never learned how to use a Bezier curve properly. Um, it just wasn't for me. But I thought that that meant the whole of design wasn't for me, you know, because mm. that was all that I was surrounded with. So in some ways, he's kind of done you a create um, that creator director did you a favor because um, you went well. Actually, you were thinking of being a little bit out of design, but um, but it was just a different course. I mean, I can imagine that at the time when you were feeling those sort of feelings and not knowing that actually there's more out there when it comes to graphic design, it must have been pretty daunting to start something completely anew. I didn't feel daunted by it. Mm. Uh, the, the creative director did do me a huge favor. He was a great, great, I really loved working with him. Um, I was kind of ready to move on anyway. I didn't feel daunted by change. I was only 27 at the time. Yeah. So, and also Icelanders are very like, Icelanders don't just have one career. They will do mm. a little bit of everything, you know, and a lot of the designers at the ad agencies also ran their own other businesses or were actors or, you know, they, wow. Icelandic people did all kinds of things. Whereas I had come from a place, I suppose, where you're geared up into just choosing one career and sticking to it. So right. a little bit of that chipped off on me, I suppose. And I felt very, I felt very confident about just switching careers at the age of 27. I didn't, like I had no responsibilities, you know, I didn't have any mm. children. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have anything that would stop me. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah I'll just go and study again. Um, so I came to Dublin. That's brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. I came to Dublin to study a master's in film production at UCD, University College Dublin, uh, which was a year long. And I did it with the aim of probably screenwriting or camera operation or something like that. Um, I certainly didn't consider at that point a career in film design. But then when I started the course, um, a visiting lecturer came in to do a module on set design with us. And all of a sudden, everything clicked. And mm. I realized it wasn't design that I was no good at or design that I didn't like. Um, it was just that it was the wrong area of design for me. And I loved film design. I loved making props and designing sets. And I mean, at that point, we were, we were very much concentrating on film design as a whole. So it was more about sets and costume rather than like small little details like graphic props, which is what I do now. Mm. Um, but I certainly was, I was just in my element and, um, it was real wake up call for me. And that lecturer, Tom Conroy, who came in to do that module with us, he was the production designer on a very popular TV show that we were shooting here in Dublin at the time called the Tudors, which was about Henry VIII. Mm. And he said to me, you know, when you graduate, come and see us um, and we'll do an interview for a role in the art department. So I graduated on whatever it was, the Friday and the following Monday, I was getting my first job really in film. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah. Tell me when you sort of talked about, you know, suddenly everything clicked, 
What was it about that love um, that you had for, for prop design? Was it to do with the design itself? Was it about imagination? Was it about everything that encapsulated? Um, I suppose it was about building worlds for mm. fiction. Um, so we would all design things for each other's films. So one student would be directing a short film and I would be designing the set for them. And some of the films were crazy, you know, off the wall stuff, which was great because you could be Mm. really imaginative. I mean, I remember one was about a, a guy walking down a hallway and there was just this series of doors and there were moths flying around and I had to figure out how to make a moth dance around a light bulb. And I did it with, by making a moth and tying it to a bit of fishing string, you know, uh, Mm. and I just loved that. I I felt like a puppet master. Um, we had to find a load of old doors that we found in a skip. Um, yeah, it was just really, really hands-on and felt very creative and, um, very satisfying. Um, I didn't have to worry about clean digital vector lines, you know, we were dealing Mm. with we were dealing with wood and material and paint and all the rest of it. I can imagine it as you describe it, I can really see that world. And also it just almost sort of takes me back to my uni days. There's something really magical when everything clicks that you suddenly just love every single minute, even the struggle of it. And on that, um, you know, we talked about your learning curve earlier when you went into the world of advertising what was uh, your learning curve there and, and how did it make you feel? Um, well, the biggest learning curve for me, I suppose, was understanding that I did definitely didn't want to be a director. Mm. Um, I remember at the very start of the course, the course leader said, okay, so put your hand up, everybody. Anybody here who wants to do this course because they want to be a director, put your hand up. And the whole class, we all put our hands up. Like... And he said, I can guarantee you by the end of this year, that number will have dropped to less than a quarter of you. <laughs> and we were just amazed by this. Like, who wouldn't want to direct? Um, but I just didn't understand what directing involved, you know? Like, I didn't want to, mm. I didn't want to direct actors. I don't, I don't want to work with people in that way and, and elicit emotion from them and, you know, figure out how to, how to block and work out a scene with mm. human beings in it. So I wanted to work with paper and words, you know, not, <laughs> not people. Um, um, so that was good. That was good to understand quite early on. And then I suppose it was really about understanding how to work with materials in a way that I hadn't done since I was a kid, I suppose. Did you feel that sense of... Um being okay to make mistakes because you just loved it so much? How how did it work? Well, first of all, we didn't have a budget for anything because everything we did was a student production, right? So (laughs) we had to be resourceful, you know? That's why we had to forage things out of skips, you know? We couldn't just, like, call up the local window and door supplier and put an order in like you can when you were working on a movie. Um, So we had to be resourceful and... Because I had had experience in design for the last four years, like I found that I was able to bring something to the student productions that was quite valuable. Um, mm. So I was able to create graphics for the set. Like I remember we, we shot a detective's office and I put the detective's name on the glass door, you know, with a, with a vinyl. Mm. And 
I just found that I found that I was able to bring something to the productions and that I had a role that I was good at. Yeah. Um, it felt, it, it just felt more natural to me. Um, even though there were loads of challenges, you know, I'm not sure that anything we made was particularly good. It didn't matter though. <laughs> no, absolutely. And tell me about that first job. What was it like? Oh, well, it was great getting it. Um, <laughs> that was thrilling, you know, getting my first job. Also being told that I was going to be paid because I was expecting to do it for nothing for some reason, you know. Um, but it was terrifying, really terrifying. Like I, I was thrilled up until the end of my first day where I, w- I felt so under pressure. I was like, I don't think I can do this. Like there was so much to think about (laughs) stuff that I had never considered, like writing a script breakdown, figuring out what scenes would need, which props. I suppose I was lucky that I started on something like the Tudors because it's relatively low volume graphics. You know, it's not like a contemporary show, which would have a lot of, I don't know, like poster design, website design, that kind of thing in the background. Um, the Tudors were all about their royal scrolls and stained glass. Mm. Um, Still quite a lot, though. It was a lot because it was things that I hadn't, I didn't know how to do, basically. Mm. I, like, I'd never designed stained glass before. I'd never designed a, a royal scroll on parchment paper. Um, I had a week's training with the departing graphic designer, and she taught me a lot gave me all her supplier lists, you know. Um, But I still felt very thrown in at the deep end. And also that that coupled with working on a film set for the first time, you know. So it wasn't just the work itself, but it was also being around all those people with radios, you know, radioing Mm. each other and (laughs) seeming so important and like all the actors and stuff going off to their trailers. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it was exciting, but it was nerve-wracking. I can imagine. And so I thought that maybe the person that employed you was on set with you. You were completely on your own. Well, I I worked as part of the art department, Mm. but everyone in the art department has their own role, their own problems to deal with. So there were drafts people and art directors and Mm. set decorators and so on and so forth. But I was the only graphics person. Um, it's a little bit unusual. I, I, I do find the films I've worked on in more recent years, there's usually one or two of us at least. Mm. Um, but on the Tudors, it was just me. Yeah. But I had a lot of support. I, I was able to go down to the model makers shed, for example, and they taught me how to stain paper and how the best materials to use to stick wax seals onto things and whatever else we needed what an amazing experience I can imagine thrown at the deep end but at the same time must have been absolutely amazing (laughs) yeah it was really thrilling I look back at that time with very fond memories it was a good good summer what was day two like so day one was kind of like super daunting and then day two what what's your characteristic like in the sense that you just 
you know, roll up your sleeve and go for it? Or do you still have sort of huge um, butterflies? Well, day one was especially difficult because I'd had my student wrap party the night before because <laughs> um, we'd all just graduated, like literally just graduated. So we'd all been out for our celebratory drinks. And then I went into work the next day and we started at eight in filmmaking. The art department starts at eight in the morning. And I didn't know what the hours were. You know, I just kind of assumed we'd finish at five. When I worked in the ad agency, we finished at five. Um, <laughs> and the day just kept going on and on and on. And eventually I plucked up the courage to ask, you know, what, well, what time do we finish? And they said, oh, we finish at 7 p.m. That's the union hours, eight, till, eight in the morning till seven. And I was like, oh, right, wow. okay. It felt like a very long day. <laughs> now those hours fly by, you know, it feels like a short day because there's so much to do. But at the start of that, I was like, oh my God, this is quite intense. Um, and that's not overtime, you know, that's just the, the normal day. Also the amounts, the volume of work you have to get through in that time, yeah. under that amount of pressure, knowing that oh. shooting is going to start. It's, it's a lot. Uh, I bet. And not really understanding how to work with suppliers and how to get stuff done. It was very daunting. So yeah, that was day one. Um, <laughs> and, then, and then I suppose days two, three, four, five, the next weeks were like that as well. You know, you, you, you get prep time on a film job. So prep time is the allotted amount of time before shooting starts. And that's when everybody's starting to make stuff. The sets are going up. Um, we're getting everything ready. You're doing your research into the periods. You're ordering all your materials. Um, learning how to use a feather quill, I suppose. Um, wow. Yeah. And then shooting starts and time is just always against you until you wrap. Um, you're, you're constantly creating props for the following weeks, the upcoming days and weeks ahead. Uh, you just don't wow. stop at all. And there's no social life. Oh, that's interesting. So you must be really good at handling stress. Because <laughs> I can imagine if you're constantly against it and you're constantly having to sort of work, you know, to put work out there um, because they need it for a scene, that must be really something where you have to sort of keep calm. And I, I can imagine not having much of a social life. <laughs> it's all about the film, basically. Yeah, it is all about the film because don't forget you do get a break between jobs because as soon as one job wraps, you very rarely move straight on to another one. There's usually a break mm. where you're just waiting for the phone to ring, you know? So that's your time to rest or to go on yeah. holiday or to see your friends or whatever it is. Um, but when I'm on a film job like that, I really just go home in the evenings, try to eat some dinner and go to bed. Wow. Um, because it is it is intense. Um, yeah, it can be stressful and different jobs have different stress levels. I find, you know, like mm. I always think it's quite nice to do the second season of a TV show because you have so much in your back pocket from the first season. Interesting. Um, so that's a good one for a more relaxing job. Um, and it also depends on the people you're working with. Like, uh, some production designers can be pretty intense and demanding and other ones can have a more relaxed attitude. And I think that trickles down to the rest of the crew. I think you have to be mindful of yourself and self-care. I think you need to get up from your desk. I think you need to take a lunch break. Um, I think you need to walk around and stretch and that kind of thing. It, you know, it all helps. 
Um, but I do also find that over the years I've just become more relaxed. You know, I don't get stressed about the things I used to, because I just know, I know how we're going to solve a problem, mm. certain problem. I know who a good supplier is to call up to say, we need this done. Is this something you can supply to us? Um, yeah, it, it's definitely getting easier as I get older. Definitely. <laughs> I can imagine also having, as you said, sort of loads of suppliers that you've got, you collected over the years um, to make things just that bit smoother. I can imagine that helps with the stress. So tell me, obviously, um, you've worked on a few Wes Anderson films. Tell me how that came about. Yeah, so actually, The Grand Budapest Hotel was my first live action feature film. Mm. Um, up until that point, I'd really mostly only done periods, kind of costume drama TV shows here in, in Ireland. I'd done one feature, but it was an animation, The Box Trolls. Um, Which was great, by the way. I love The Box Trolls. Yeah, I really loved that film, actually. That was a lovely animation. It was a great film to work on as well. Like her, a great, great studio to work for. Um, so getting the call for Grand Budapest Hotel was huge for me, you know, because I was still felt relatively inexperienced at that point. Um, but they wanted to know, they were coming to Europe for the first time. I think, I think that was Wes's first European film. Um, and they were looking for a European graphic designer and they just wanted to know if I had any examples of graphic prop design in my portfolio from the the early 1900s mm. and luckily enough I had just wrapped up on a tv show about the construction of the Titanic the ship mm. so I had a portfolio full of early 1900s cigarette packet design letterpress posters newspapers all that kind of thing, which was great because up until that point, I'd really only done kind of medieval shows, dark age things, Camelot, um, the Tudors. Um, everything was definitely like pre-15th century, you know. Right. Um, so I had loads of stuff to show them. And yeah, I got the job. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah, it was amazing. Can you tell me at that point how many years of experience you had? Oh, so years, I probably started out in 2007 mm -hmm. and that movie was shot in 2011, I think. Yeah, so not a huge amount of years. No. In film terms, we usually talk in terms of shows though, so, so how many IMDb credits you have. Right. Um, but I, you know, I'd probably done one, one thing per year. So yeah, that probably evened out. Yeah. But I, I wasn't, I wasn't massively experienced. Um, but how great. And I, that, that's interesting. You were saying about the, the Titanic, um, story, because in my head, when I was obviously sort of researching you, I imagined that, um, Wes Anderson saw that kind of stylistic style that are very similar to, to his way of seeing the world. It, do you think that's the case? Obviously I haven't seen this sort of titanic work that you've done the work i done for titanic titanic was super realistic because it was like a historical drama mm. but i think at that point that's what he was looking for he wanted somebody who could imitate things you know it's more right. like forgery than mm. it is creativity um and i i had i had developed a knack at that point for imitating historical documents mm. i very much like i didn't have a style a personal style um 
I was very adaptable to different styles for different periods because sometimes people ask me, you know, oh, well, it must have been very difficult having to having to let go of your own style in order to fit into Wes Anderson's style. Ah. But it wasn't at all because that's what my skill was. My And I think any graphic designer for film, you always have to step into the shoes of somebody else's style mm. because you're going to be designing a mid-century passport or shop signage from the Victorian London or whatever it is, you know, you never work into your own style. You never bring your own look mm. to a film set. You're always, you're always trying to, to imitate something that's gone before you, you know. Which makes complete sense as you're explaining it. Um, but tell me, how, how was the experience like? So you, you got the call, you got the job. What was sort of, again, sort of day one on the, on the job? So we all flew to Berlin and I was the only crew member coming from Ireland. Most of the crew were either English from uh, London or American, Wes's normal team, mm -hmm. or local Berlin film crew. Right. Um, so it was kind of like everybody already had their own circle, except mm. for me. That's what oh. I felt like, you know, I oh. felt like so, I was like the new girl. Um, <laughs> but everyone was really friendly. Like it's a very friendly crew. Like Wes has a very tight knit crew around him. Um, they were very welcoming and it was, it was a good experience, but I was so nervous. Like <laughs> I was more nervous about going to the canteen <laughs> And having lunch with people than I was about designing something for Wes. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit of an introvert or something, but like. No, I completely but, uh, empathize. I completely, I would have been exactly the same. It is exactly like starting school, right? <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And I kind of had a little bit of experience of that already because every film you start is like that, you know, it's always a different crew and mm. a different location and stuff. But I definitely feel better just squirreling away in my own little room making props than I do kind of chatting to people on a film set. Yeah. <laughs> And was it, how challenging was the, the design jobs for the film? It was a very challenging film because there was a huge volume of graphics, but also we were designing to a fictional place. It was mm. all for the, the empire of Zubrovka. Yeah. But it was rooted in kind of real Eastern European kind of 1930s style and we were also incorporating Wes's beautiful symmetry into everything as well. So it was of a course. bit of a tightrope getting things right. But Wes is amazing to work for because he's so, he's so experimental and he wants to try different things all the time. But he'll really give you direction. You know, it's not like I, I've worked for other directors who will who will say, oh, you know, that's not quite right, but I don't know what it is that it needs. Mm. Whereas Wes will be very much like, oh, maybe we could try this in pink or whatever it is. Um, so mm. there's, there's a real element of fun in designing for him because um, he, he doesn't come in with fixed ideas, but he wants to experiment. And somehow, you know, after lots and lots of back and forth, we get there with, with each piece. And he won't put anything into a set that he's not happy with. So very meticulous in everything that he does. 
Yeah, but I, I, I don't want to paint him as being someone who's prescriptive because he's not mm. actually. I think that's I think that's a misunderstanding. Um, he wants to play with everything and have fun with everything, and I think I think he does that in every area mm. of his filmmaking. Like it's not just the graphic design. I think he does does it. Mm. And, and tell me about that pink. You mentioned that pink. How did that come about? Well, it wasn't really my area. The color. Mm. thinking about the color for the movie that would have come from the production designer and Wes together because when we first started one of my first jobs was to design the carpets for the hotel oh wow and at first we were designing everything in kind of mint green and pale blues and then I remember Adam the production designer coming into the art department one day and saying okay everybody we're changing the color palette it's going to be pink red purple gold um, and that was something that he and Wes had been right. developing over the first few weeks. And I remember thinking like, wow, I wonder how this is going to work. And then the day that the carpet guys arrived from Berlin to lay all the carpets in, in our hotel set, I stood up on the balcony with Adam and we, look, we looked down at it together and all the, the scenic painters were painting all the pillars and all these lovely ice cream colors. And that was when I understood it. I was like, oh my God, this is going to look incredible. Whereas when I had been looking at my carpet design on my computer screen, I was like, gosh, this red and purple is kind of crazy, right? Um, <laughs> but it, you know, it worked. And that's why you have one director. And that's mm. why you have one production designer, because you have to be working to one vision. And we're all cogs in the wheel, really. Um, mm. I think film sets are a bit like an army sometimes. You just take care of your own little things and it all adds up to this much bigger picture. Mm, that makes complete sense. I can see, I can sort of see the vision that you had from uh, as you saw the carpet being laid out. It must have been amazing. Yeah. And tell me, you started on the carpet, but what else did you do? Because I know uh, that you've done a lot of props for that movie. Oh, God, there was such a long list of props. Like, I mean, on any job, the first thing you do is you sit down with the script and you go through it and you make a script breakdown and fill in a spreadsheet of everything that's going to be your responsibility. So every graphic, like, I mean, in its simplest terms, a graphic would be anything with lettering on it, anything mm. with a pattern on it, and anything with an illustration on it. So we made hundreds of pieces. We made tickets and cigarette boxes and telegrams and signage, loads and loads of signage, newspapers. Mm. I mean, it's a, it's a fictitious country, so we had to create an entire national press. Um, you know, if you're working on a historical drama, you might get away with using the times. But on this movie, it was the Transalpine Yodel, you know? So <laughs> there, was, there was a lot to do. All the flags, all the countries, library, banners, um, emblems, postage stamps, all the envelopes, um, bottle labels in the hotel, door numbers, even the tiniest little inconsequential seeming things if it has any kind of letter or number on it you know mm. hotel key fobs all these Amazing. things had to be made by the graphics department that sounds like just so much fun I can imagine for you just being that involved because I you know you were saying before that not every film has this amount of design elements right it's a little bit tricky because 
there was a huge volume of graphics in Grand Budapest, but there is often a huge volume of graphics. Like if you're working on a movie that is set in, say, for example, a newsroom, mm. you are going to have to create an enormous volume of graphics. If you're working right. on a movie set on a farm, that volume is going to be way less, you know? Mm. Um, so I don't <laughs> want people to think that if they work on a, uh, on a film that's not a Wes Anderson film, they're going to have less to do because there right. is all, it, it depends on the subject at, at hand, really. Sure. That makes sense. Um, I, sp- I, th- I think the tricky thing with Grand Budapest was balancing those, that style with yeah. realism and fiction and wares. Um, yeah, that was the tricky thing. And you say we, um, how big was your team? Uh, for the film? Yeah, so luckily um, I had a really amazing uh, graphic designer working with me, Liliana Lambrieve, who was a Berlin graphic designer for film. She'd done loads of period stuff already. So she was totally au fait with not just that period and lettering styles from Eastern Europe, but also suppliers and where to get things made and printed and the local the local bookbinder. Oh, and whoever else we worked with. Yeah, so that was great. And then we also had two PAs working with us, Molly and Miguel, and they did a lot of making props, you know, ripping up the telegrams, putting the blood on, drawing uh, pieces for prison escape maps. And yeah, they were brilliant. That's brilliant. So there was four, four of us in total. That's great. So a great little team. And tell me, because I, I can imagine that every film has its good and <clears throat> sorry, I'll say that again. Um, tell me, I can imagine that a lot of films have their good and bad days. What's kind of like a bad day on that on that set? Oh, I think the worst days are when something goes wrong and you're under time pressure and something has to shoot within a few days and you've messed up. Um, (laughs) You know, there's no escaping it. It happens on every film. Um, But that kind of pressure is really quite frightening because the film doesn't stop for a graphic, you know? Like, Mm. I mean, I think if an actor is sick, they might change the schedule, but they're certainly not going to change the schedule because you didn't get your maps printed on vellum in time. Um, Wow. (laughs) So that kind of pressure is is tough. I mean, I'm sure I made lots of mistakes on that movie. Um, the biggest remember, mistake that comes to go on. Oh, sorry, no, no. I no. know, I know what you're going to say. <laughs> the patisserie mistake. Yeah, <laughs> the patisserie mistake. I made a spelling mistake on the Mendel's patisserie box. Um, but to be honest, that actually wasn't too bad because I, I mean, I was embarrassed. But I remember Wes and the producers being very pragmatic about it and just being like, okay, that, you know, let's fix it. You know, um, we'd shot hundreds of boxes already at that point. So some of them had to be fixed in post-production, which is, I think that's time, time, uh, time consuming and costly, you know? Um, yeah. so I was embarrassed. So what was the mistake? Oh, I, I put a spelling mistake on it that I, I put two T's in patisserie. Um, because nearly everything we made for that set was hand lettered, Mm. uh, it just never went through a spell check. And that's a real rookie mistake because, um, 
it's not like working in an ad agency where you're always working with a copy editor or somebody who's going to check your spelling for you. Um, when you're a graphic designer in film, you do that yourself. You know, you really yeah. have to take care of everything yourself. And I just hadn't checked it. And we'd shot so many scenes at that point. Like we were well over halfway through the shoot of the whole movie. And Wes got in touch and said, I think there's a spelling mistake on the oh. on the box. <laughs> and I was, yeah, I was mortified. Um, but we fixed it and it was fine. And then we had hundreds and hundreds of boxes with spelling mistakes on them at the end of the show and some that didn't, that had the right way. And then afterwards, like long time afterwards, once the film was released, that Mendel's box, I mean, it almost became like a kind of an icon for the movie itself, you know? Completely. And people started selling them on eBay. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, but they were making their own knockoff versions. Um, <laughs> With a double T? No, I knew, you know, I always knew if, the, if it was a real or a fake, because if it was a real one, it had the spelling mistake oh, in it. Of course. Yeah, I got a call from somebody once as well. No, not a call, sorry, an email from somebody who was at an auction in New York saying, I heard a rumor that there was a spelling mistake on that box. I'm just wondering if you could clarify, because I'm about to bid on this one for like $500 or something. Oh, wow. Yeah. I mean, that box itself was just everywhere. It was so iconic. It must have been such a lovely feeling to know that you, you know, you made that, even with a spelling mistake. I think that's a lovely story. Yeah. I have a couple of them here in my studio they're keepsakes and um, yeah. one has the one has the mistake and one doesn't but uh, right. yeah it, listen it's not the worst mistake I've made on a film set so I'm quite oh. I'm kind of quite I'm kind oh, of quite really? happy to talk about this story um Tell you know, me about all, your worst mistake then oh uh, <laughs> listen they happen they happen constantly you know um because everybody's under such pressure you know you can't yeah. get everything right all the time of course I mean I can't think of an example now but uh everything's always going wrong <laughs> Yeah, exactly. And that's part of the, the deal of the job, isn't it? Especially if you work so fast and, you know, it's scene after scene. Yeah. And um, you've worked for quite a, more, a few more films for Wes Anderson. You've done The Isle of Dogs and the recent one, which I just saw the trailer for, the French Dispatch uh, film, both incredible films. Um what was it like? Is, is, was it completely different in terms of experiences, these other two films? Yeah, I think it was because there was a fair gap between Grand Budapest and Isle of Dogs. And in that meantime, I worked on a load of other shows, period shows. And of course, Isle of Dogs was animation. Um, and I did most of that movie remotely. Oh, really? From my studio in Dublin. Right. Yeah. Around that time, I... I that was 20, 2016. I must have been pregnant with my first mm. baby. Because uh, I remember the producer calling me and saying, oh, I just wanted to see what your availability was going to be like for the next year or so, because we're going to start Wes's new film now. And I said, oh gosh, I haven't actually told anybody this yet because I was only about like four weeks pregnant or something. Right. I was like, but I'm, I'm actually, I'm actually going to be having a baby this year. 
And um, they were great, you know, uh, they were really great. He said, well, look, why don't you do it remotely? We'll get a graphic designer in here. They got Erica Dawn, who's brilliant. Um, and actually, ever since then, I have been working remotely on on films. Uh, wow. So that was a great, great intro into remote working. It, it just shows how now, especially thanks to COVID in some ways, there's one thing that's good that people realize that you can absolutely work um, remotely. There isn't, it doesn't mean that your work is going to be less good. It's changed everything really uh, for film work, for remote film work, because up until now, up until the pandemic, it was just such a no-no. And I was quite limited in the movies that mm. I was able to take on because they really want you within shouting distance you know someone has to be able to barge into your room and give you hell um, <laughs> but uh but now of course everybody's working remotely so it is possible you know um which is great uh yeah I see it as a very positive thing and there's less shouting do you think or there's just more um, there, I think there's less I think there's less shouting I think everyone's a bit calmer I think I think I think the pressures come off everybody a little bit. It's like That's great. okay, we have there are there are bigger problems in the world. <laughs> yes, exactly, exactly. So you were about to say about the the French Dispatch as well. What was it like? Yes, so that hasn't been released yet. So I can't really say a word about it. Fair enough. Um, but um, I don't know when it'll be released either. Uh, I suppose when the cinemas are open up again. But I I don't know when that's going to be really. Um, but yeah, it was another great Wes experience and like everything, everything we make for him is so much fun. You know, it's, it's never Mm. just the ordinary realism stuff. You were telling me about, um, a little bit, you touch on the kind of the creativity aspect. So he leaves you kind of room to have your own thoughts on it. Um, can you speak a bit more about that? Oh, well, you have to have your own thoughts on it because you have to, you have to supply him with like. 20 different ideas every day mm. on all kinds of props, you know? Um, um, yeah, but I mean, I, I, I always work to a reference always. It doesn't mm. matter what film I'm working on. It doesn't matter if I'm working on like a children's fantasy adventure or a Wes Anderson movie or an animation or like a realistic historical drama. Like I always start with a real reference. And I think that's the trick in creating something authentic for a film set. I find Mm. that if I design blind, like if I just start with a blank document, don't look at anything for inspiration, I just make something that looks contrived. Um, You have to be able to do your research and study real pieces from history. Um, And you will develop it, you know, you, you will turn it into something else, something more original or whatever it is Mm. because you have to you have to adapt it to suit the script to suit the genre of the piece or the plot or the action or whatever's going on um Mm. but yeah I do always try to start with something real which is interesting because that's can be applied across all creative disciplines we all I think I completely agree with you that having a, a reference is just key otherwise as you said it's sort of contrived it's it's boring. It's sort of doesn't work. Well, I think so. I do think so. I really believe this. And like, I wrote a book recently, and like, nearly mm. my whole book is revolves around this this thought. But I was at a design conference a few years ago where the guy speaking before me like had completely the opposite idea, and he was all about originality and how we need to stop 
copying and looking at other things. And I was thinking, I was thinking, oh shit. Because um, <laughs> I was about to get up on stage and say, come on guys, forgery is where it's at. You know? um, but I think we are influenced by the art that has happened before us. And I'm not talking about paintings necessarily. I'm not talking about oil paintings or graphic design from famous graphic designers. I'm talking about the old sign that the ironmonger has hung up, you know, like exactly. we can't, you can't ignore the world around you. Like we're absorbing it all the time. And I think it's, I think it's good to, to channel that. Oh, completely. In fact, it's been proven um, that, you know, everyone that says, oh, I've come up with an original idea. Well, actually, no, because you might be walking down the street and as you say, you see a sign, you see a color that someone is wearing and, you know, it's all subconscious, but then it sort of gets put together into an idea. So I, I, I'm with you. I think we uh, constantly sort of borrow from different things, from inspiration and then create our own. And as you said, it's never going to be exactly the same. It's not going to be an exact copy, otherwise fun. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think my workshop students are worried about that. Mm. I think when they come to my classes, there's two things that I, it's like hurdles that I have to get them over. First of all, there's no computers in the room. So we just, all the props that we make and mm. um, all the little things that we do in the workshop are all done by hand. Um, and then secondly, I really have to get them out of this feeling that they have to be original in order to make something that's of value. Mm. Um, and it's certainly something I felt when I worked in advertising. I was yes. like, oh, how can I do something new with this? How can I, you know, I, I was always asked to like think outside the box mm. and I couldn't, I just couldn't. I didn't, it, it just, I, it was just like a brick wall. I just couldn't, I just couldn't create something original or new or fresh. And then when I went into film design and our whole ethos is that we take, steal, borrow from the real world and then develop it and turn it, turn it into something weird and wonderful. That just really clicked with me. Mm. Um, and now I'm very much trying to get my students to like, you know, this is forgery. You need to copy this telegram from 1957 exactly in order for it to feel authentic. And then you can start changing things and change the mm. content and make it pink or whatever it is to, to fit the, to fit the genre that you're working to. Yeah. It makes complete sense. And, and that's what I quite like that you, you start from a place of safety in some ways by forging something that's already kind of done and is successful and then the risk comes in when you have to put your own voice to it, which is still, you know, I can imagine quite daunting in itself. I mean, it's only recently really that I've started working on my own artwork because mm. for years I was so busy with film. Like I was just so busy. Like when I look back now at the amount of work I turned over, I think I was crazy, especially oh. like when my kid was so little, mm. um, I was just like working so much and then the pandemic hit mm. and everything changed, you know, like I really had to slow down all of a sudden film, filmmaking stopped completely for the first few months. Um, and I had some time for the first time in years. Mm. Uh, and I started making my own artwork and I took a lot from what I do for film work 
but I was able to really like push it more and be more creative and fun with it and mm. less rig less rigorous about the rules that I'd set out for myself in life. And that was that mm. was really that was fun. Yeah, I can imagine. That's one of the great silver lining of this pandemic is I think a lot more people have got time. And it's great that you used that time to really do something completely different. Um, I saw about your book, um, which I'm definitely going to get because um, it looks just fascinating. Um, Tell me about that process. Was it kind of daunting to sort of do that? Um, The book took years to write. Mm. I think I worked on it for three three or four years wow um and fide and the publisher approached me about it because i was putting stuff on instagram about about my process and the publisher contacted me and said how i had i ever thought about writing a book about all this and i had actually um i thought it would be a great book because there just wasn't one on the market Mm. Um, and I felt that was a real gap in the market. And I had I had spoken to another publisher about the idea previously, and they said that they didn't feel there was enough crossover between people interested in graphics and people interested in filmmaking. Mm. And that that was understandable, you know. Like it is, it's a kind of a niche area. Um, but I wasn't put off by that because I just felt that that meant there surely there was more call for it because yes. it hadn't been done yet. Yeah. And Fiden really, really acknowledged that. And, um, yeah, we started work on it and I was writing it at the same time as working on movies and making props. And I was also remaking props from films that I had worked on to photograph for the book. Cause these things often just end up in the right. bin. Um, oh, gosh. So it was, it was another intense process. Yeah. Uh, but it was wonderful to get a book out of it at the end because so much of my work is for other people. It, so much of my work is for directors and production mm. designers and set decorators and prop masters. And this book really felt like my own thing. Mm. Um, and I was able to write, you know, which is what I left advertising years of ago to course. do. Um, and, you know, I love writing. And um, it was really thrilling to me to be able to write this book in a way that I hoped would would be accessible to the reader I had in mind was always sure. young graphic design students or graphic designers who were thinking about changing career paths, you know, who wanted mm. to maybe get into film and who didn't understand the process and didn't understand what the job involved. It's almost like you were helping your younger self when you first started out with that book. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. maybe that's what it was. <laughs> um. I had, because um, we talked a lot about Wes Anderson, and obviously you've worked on a lot more films. It's obviously the most famous ones, but you've also worked for Steven Spielberg and The Bridge of Spies, but also his new film, Wet Side Story, which I'm sure you can't talk about that either. But tell yeah. me what it's like as an experience to just work for a different director and how things changes. Yeah, I mean, every director has a different different style and different contact you know like sometimes I won't speak to the director at all like I don't think I spoke to Spielberg once on on either of the movies of his that I worked on um there was a little bit of interaction over I think newspapers that we were designing at one point um but generally especially because that was a Bridge of Spies was a historical drama it was a Mm. true story you know so everything we were making was like super realistic and 
Um, so we were really going off the real pieces from the time, you know. Mm. Um, and then other jobs, you know, I'll just work for the art director or the production designer. I did a nice job recently for an American new TV series where I was just talking to the prop master. Um, mm. They all vary from, yeah. from film to film. And do you think that thanks to working with Wes, that kind of opened a lot more work for you that maybe you wouldn't have had? I think that came from working with Adam. Adam Stockhausen is right. Wes's production designer. And he was the one who was recruited by Steven Spielberg to design ah. Bridge of Spies. And he took me with them, you know? Oh, lovely. And he was also the production designer of West Side Story. So he was the one who called me up for that. Right. Um, I think it's really to do with the production. The, produ the production designer is the person who designs the overall look mm. of the movie, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think they're the ones that you end up traveling around with, really. Mm. Uh, I think working for Wes Anderson, though, has certainly opened up doors to me that I would never have had in terms of my commercial design work. Like, you know, I've designed products for a Korean makeup company um, who wanted something along the lines of the Mendel's box. Um, Amazing. I'm about to start on rebranding for a restaurant in London. Um, oh, wow. They came to me, they came to me through, through my work that I did for Grand Budapest, you know? Mm. So there's been some fun things like that, that where definitely people want, want to try and achieve a bit of that Wes look. Yeah. So fun. So good. Yeah. You said that the pandemic has changed things a lot uh, for you, like being able to be more retrospective, but also in, in terms of how you work on films, meaning that you can work remotely. Um, I wonder what's kind of next for you. What's uh, the next chapter in terms of personally what you would like to achieve? Well, I am having a baby in July. Ah, so congratulations. My, thanks, yeah. So that's my next, uh, <laughs> my next big project. But in the meantime, I got a call, well, I can't say from who, but from a, a big new animation. And they said... Uh, would I have availability this year to work with them? And I said, no, you know, I'm going to be having a baby in July. And they were so accommodating. And they were like, you know, you could do part-time, you could come back after you have the baby if you felt like it. Or, you know, they were like so flexible. Um, um, so that's really heartening. And um, I love animation. I love working in mm. animation so much. It's so different to live action. Um I shouldn't really say this, but it's so much more civilized because <laughs> it's just it's just such a longer process and the pressure isn't the same and it's more organized and the style is more involved and you have longer time to develop a very particular style for the film. Oh. Um I think I think my my work just lends itself better to animation than live action. Um, it's not always so realistic. Um, you can kind of have more fun with it and push, push things a little bit further. Um, and I'm constantly working with paint and my felt tips and mm. my dipping pen or whatever else it is. That sounds like heaven. And, and actually on that, on, on being flexible, I mean, have you found that the world is finally changing with how they look at women and mothers, you know, that was really interesting that they came back to you and said, you know, we're, we're going to be much more flexible 
because it, it, can, it can be quite tough, the hours and films, and I can imagine. Yeah, I hope so. I hope I hope that things are, are changing a bit from from this from this way of working through this pandemic. I feel I feel things are changing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, like you can now even admit to having children. You know, like my yes. little boy will come up to me on a Zoom call and just sit on my knee and be like, "Hi" to my clients. You know, and everyone's like, "Oh, hi." You know, this is the way things are now. Whereas a couple of years ago, I'd have just been like, "Children? No, I don't have any children." <laughs> oh my god, I so feel you with that. It's incredible. <laughs> That yeah. we had to hide that side in order to still get jobs, right? Because otherwise someone yeah. might just be prejudiced. Yeah, I think so. You know, I really do. There's a real push in the graphics, in the UK Graphics Film Union at the moment to reduce the film working hours from finishing at 7pm to finishing at 6.30pm. 6, 6 mm. Because that extra half an hour makes such a difference. It means that you can put your own kids to bed at night, you know? Mm. Um, and I think that's so important. And this just used to be a bit of a, like when I started in film, nobody would have mentioned that, like, you know, mm. that, like I need to put my kids to bed. It was like, well, that's your problem. You know? yes. <laughs> Whereas now I think we're all saying it and, mm. you know, people are, people are much more understanding of it. Yeah. Maybe completely. it's since, maybe it's since guys have had to start doing a lot of that as well now you know Mm. I don't know you you posted recently on Instagram I saw uh about how a lot of people might not realize just the amount of women that work on film you know it's often like a big sort of uh, all about the director but you've worked with tons of women do you think it's time to sort of shine a light on all these different women that work on film yeah, I do. I think it's just a weirdly common misunderstanding that film is a real man's world. Mm. Um, and I think that misunderstanding comes from photographs of film crews, because anytime you see a photo of a film crew, it's probably a photo of the camera crew, because mm. that's what we think of film crews as, like the people who are actually filming the movie, you know, shooting it. Yes. Um, that's what I used to think a film crew was. But if you read the credits of any movie at the end, there's hundreds of names rolling up at the end, you know, and it's all people doing Mm. all kinds of jobs, you know, like, you know, costume designers, hair and makeup designers, model makers, the whole art department. Mm. Most of the graphic designers I know are female in filmmaking. Um, And I think we did a quick check when i wrote that post on instagram uh, my friends over in england in the uk union looked it up and i think it was like 70 something percent female wow which is high right yes exactly yeah so i really don't want my workshop students who are mostly female as well i don't want them to feel intimidated at the thought of entering this like man's world you know Mm. because I don't I think it's wrong I don't I don't think it's actually like that and you know I always joke with them like don't worry about it like that you're going to be working for plenty of intimidating women as well you know (laughs) that's right (laughs) (laughs) that's great Mm -hmm. in talking of students um I'd love to sort of finish our amazing conversation which by the way I would probably be happy continuing for an extra hour but I'm conscious of time um I would love to ask you, you know, what would you say to anyone coming into this industry or actually 
who might already be in, in this industry, in the creative industry, who, like you, sort of found yourself like, okay, advertising is not right. I need to, to sort of switch. What kind of advice would you give them? Yeah, I think you have to make a portfolio for the world that you want to work in. Mm. So don't wait for a job to build your portfolio, okay? You can just start making stuff now. Like you don't have to have an official brief or a paid uh, a paid job to, to create what you want to make, you know? Um, like if you want to work in film, then start making some props, you know? If you're interested in the mid-century or medieval times or whatever it is, then start making things in that vein mm. and put a portfolio together. Um, yeah, I think that's really important. Yeah. And then you can show people what you want to do instead of just telling people. I absolutely love that advice. And as soon as you said that, I thought, gosh, that is such a good advice that loads of people should say, because it's not just that you can see if you like it, you know, you can do the work. It's also seeing whether internally it kind of really resonates with you and if you find that actually the more you do it you're having fun then you kind of almost know that this is a right vocation for you yeah I think so too I think it's really important well on that note um Annie that was incredible I learned so much from you um thank you so much for taking the time it was wonderful thanks Rebecca it's been great to chat Thank you for listening to this episode of This Way Up. I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. Please look out for more empowering interviews in the weeks to come. Now, I have a couple of special favors to ask. Firstly, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then please subscribe on iTunes and leave a review. It really helps generate exposure for the podcast and allows a wider audience to get access to these really important topics. Secondly, if you know of anyone else that would enjoy this show and benefits from the topics I cover, then do please share the podcast. Um, by sharing this with just a couple of people, it will just help spread the good message and hopefully support the women this podcast was designed to reach. Finally, if you can follow This Way Up podcast, or one word on Instagram, you'll get notified of future episodes. And the idea is that together we can build a powerful community and hopefully start to change the creative industry. That's it from me. Until next time.